Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, the post-sabbatical version. This has been a nice five weeks off, let me tell you. I worked 11 months straight, and then the day after I go on sabbatical, I got sick, and I was sick for three weeks, because you know your body's like, you gonna work us 11 months straight without a vacation? No, we're gonna show you how we feel about that. Anyway, so Character in Context, where I usually teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture, with an eye developing the character of the Messiah, but not right now. Um, right now I'm doing a series about how not to waste your time with bad study practices, bad resources, and just the general confusion that I faced when I started studying the Bible and was trying to figure out what to do and whose books I should read and what is out there that's available to be studied and changes the way we read the Bible. Bottom line, I read a lot of nonsense and spent a ton of money on it. I'm going to give you some basics about how to avoid a lot of the pitfalls, save money, maximize your time and effort, and get the most out of what you're doing. So what we're doing here is getting you introduced to summaries of what's out there to study and things you should know about. Master book list is on my website in the transcript, and I add to it as I need to. Words are really important, and so is the context of the ancient world, and there are a lot of terrible teachings out there from people who aren't linguists or don't have access to linguists. I'm really fortunate that I do. Who haven't made an attempt to study the ancient world and maybe don't even understand how incredibly unlike ours it is. Different enough that just about any assumption we would make about them and why they did what they did or believe what they did would be wrong. As an example, I saw a teaching the other day that was forwarded to me where someone who is not educated in biblical context was decrying ancient Near Eastern context studies. To me, that's just mind-boggling. Yes, those studies can change how we see things, and many times they show us that we were dead wrong. You know, like the sermon I sat through where Abram was called henpecked because he agreed to have a child with Hagar. But, you know, it isn't a bad thing to be proven wrong. It's a good thing. It makes us better readers, better teachers, and better preachers because context reigns in our imaginations. There are assumptions we make that are just 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Now, I am not telling you that you can't understand anything unless you understand languages and context. I mean, we can understand the basic meta narrative of scripture quite well without any of that, which, you know, is God's character and his rescue plan for humanity after the fall and a return to the perfect fellowship for him that he craves. All that is just easier to understand with context and language. But no one needs to have a PhD to read what Yeshua, you may call him Jesus, is saying and understand that we are called to lives of radical love, forgiveness, service, and self-sacrifice. Sometimes the people who know that the best don't even own Bibles or haven't even seen one. So don't get me wrong. I'm talking to people who want to study and teach with more understanding and accuracy. I'm not saying that it will necessarily make you a better person or greater in the kingdom because... A whole lot of people know a lot and are just insufferable. Or, you know, even atheists can know a lot about the Bible. 
and context. So I don't want anyone to feel judged. That isn't the case. But when we have a belief that gets knocked down by context, it's wrongheaded and arrogant to just throw out context studies. Instead, we have to dig in and reevaluate. I have to do that all the time, and I love it. Just um, yesterday, as when I was writing this, I was taught something about boiling a kid in its mother's milk that has me reeling, and it's changing the way I have always taught it. And I guess I can't just leave it at that, right? But agriculturally, and with where the verses show up, it would make logical sense to interpret that as not removing a young animal from its mother before it's been weaned in order to sacrifice it. And anyone who has ever worked in a ranch setting knows how upsetting it is to mom and baby, and it just isn't optimal for either. I'll link the book that I've been reading in the transcript, and I will put it in the main book list. It was really good. Some of this information will be review. Some of it will be new, so hang in there. Repetition is great for learning. First, I want to talk about what I'm going to call groupthink, which in modern times describes the downfall of a group coming to a consensus on something based on not wanting to upset the group or subvert tradition, instead of relying on critical thinking and an analysis of how things would work better. Welcome to the ancient world. Why was Abram not henpecked when he agreed to Sarai's demands that he father a child with her slave? Because that's the way things were done in the ancient world, and we know that from studying ancient Near Eastern law codes from Israel's neighbors, from the Hittites to the Babylonians. Sarai had a legal right to demand this according to the common law of the ancient world. As scholars like to say, it was the common water that everyone was drinking from in those times. Abram wouldn't have questioned either the request or even the wisdom of it, even though we are rightly appalled and grossed out by it now. Ancient sociology, which is the study of social groups and interactions, is very different from the way that Westerners view the world. In fact, it's almost entirely different. They weren't particularly introspective or inward-thinking. Their opinions of themselves were entirely based upon what the rest of the community thought about them. Their ideas about right and wrong were also community-based. They were very slow to question how things had always been done because, yeah, the fact that they were still alive supported the idea that the old ways were best and new ways were risky and would possibly offend the gods. It probably would. Their identity was embedded in the past and not in the future. They looked backward and not forward to discover who they were, which is why Abram leaving his clan was such a radical thing of Yahweh to ask him. People who fundamentally change their identity or loyalties like Paul when he came to be identified by Yeshua-based Judaism, or when Moses returned from the wilderness a changed man, when people did that, they were considered to be suspicious or unhinged. Bucking the system got people killed, and so did subverting the social order, as far as they were concerned, which is why we see so very little innovation in the ancient world as compared to now, when we are always wanting something new and avant-garde. Family relationships were also nothing like ours in a lot of ways. 
mothers were very close to their children and especially their firstborn sons because they would have an ongoing lifelong relationship while daughters were being trained to leave and join another family. Husbands and wives and fathers and children had very limited relationships with each other as their social spheres were entirely different with men engaging the outside world and women confined to the household and to the company of relatives. However, that could change based on social status. You know, boys really not having much to do with men until they came of age. And so if we're reading the Bible accounts of the patriarchs and monarchy and imagining the Western nuclear family, we're going to make a lot of bad judgment calls about what life looked like for them and how they even felt about each other. This becomes especially problematic when we look at the metaphors of Yahweh as father, mother, husband, bridegroom, master, or any of that. And especially the Jesus's boyfriend theology, which is more rooted in the romantic literature of the last 500 years than anything that would have made sense to them at the time. Into this mix, we can add the importance of understanding honor-shame dynamics, hospitality demands, and covenant theology so that we can be clear on how they related to one another, how they saw their relations toward each other and their obligations. When we do, a lot of what we see on the page just springs to life along with the, well, that's super messed up, you know, kind of responses. We can also empathize with them that this is what made sense within their culture. I remember the day when I was reading uh, Neri's The Social World of Luke Through Acts, and it just clicked. And I began to be able to think like they would think. And it was just mind-blowing. I'm not saying I do that perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. And sometimes it was very a disturbing experience. I thank God for the people who studied this stuff because I could have looked at the Bible for a million years and would have never gotten it just from what was in the text. Another important aspect of sociology is understanding the difference between clean and unclean and holy versus common or profane. And actually, that is so important that I'm going to talk about the importance of that in ancient cultures now. And next week, I'll do the weird science and linguistics and uh, talk about religion next week. When people first began studying the Hebrew scriptures, the whole clean, unclean, and holy versus profane thing can really be derailing. And it's so easy to get the wrong idea. The first person to teach me about it had absolutely no clue what it meant. And he treated them like sin issues when really they're about what things are and aren't good for and where they do and do not belong and how to change the status of things and people through rituals. As far as understanding holiness goes, you cannot do better than to read Joshua Berman's book, The Temple, and I believe that's chapter four. As for purity issues, David De Silva's Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity is a great workup on a lot of the concepts I have been mentioning this week. Uh, and he just came out with a second edition. It's a terrific crash course. And then you can read everything else he writes as well, because it's, it's great. And the same with Joshua Berman and, and Jerome Neary. But holiness is a conferred status. No one can just decide to be holy. And in fact, 
humans aren't holy. A community can be holy, as is Israel uh, slash the body of Messiah, because as a group, we have been granted that status as a, a royal priesthood. But I'm not holy myself, and neither are you. We are holy. Jobs can be holy because the status of the job is conferred by Yahweh, and there is a ritual anointing. So as a teacher, I am not holy, okay? But together we're a holy nation. But the priests were holy and therefore set apart by God with a special status that allowed them to do what no one else could, namely make sacrifices, handle the blood of the sacrifice, do the work of the outer altar and within the holy place. That status was conferred on them as a group based on their lineage and not because of their character. They could access places that average Israelites couldn't, despite the rest of the nation being holy as well. There is holy, and then there's holy enough. And as laymen, their status as a royal priesthood was not holy enough to touch the sacred things and to be in certain areas. There wasn't anything wrong with them. They just didn't have the holy job. For example, they couldn't diagnose or announce someone with a skin condition as clean or unclean. The high priest had a status of even greater holiness, and he alone could perform the Yom Kippur rituals within the Holy of Holies once per year. He wasn't holy enough to go in whenever he wanted to, nor did he have the holiness required to forego the rituals that made him acceptable to enter. The opposite of holy is common or profane, and let me tell you right now that there's actually nothing wrong with anything that's either common or profane. It just means that it's something that is, for lack of a better word, normal. The Sabbath day is holy, but the other six days of the week are normal days or common or profane. On normal days, we do normal things. We work and work is good, but it just isn't appropriate for the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is a day of elevated importance because it's holy and so we are careful not to violate it lightly, as best we can. Our society is not at all tuned into the concept of holy versus profane, and so we live largely profane lives, not observing much of anything as set apart or special. Ancient Israel, on the other hand, was supposed to just operate that way permanently, and modern Israel actually does a pretty good job of shutting the world down on the Sabbath. Holy and profane also come into play when we are studying the concept of places and spaces. The closer a person got to the Holy of Holies in the temple or tabernacle, the greater the level of holiness was, and shoes had to be removed, and higher levels of ritual cleanliness had to be observed. However, no matter how ritually clean a person was, they could still only get so close to the holiest precincts of the temple. And no matter the holiness of the priestly position, if they were ritually unclean, they could only come within certain distances of the holy places. And this is because they're entirely different things. By the way, your church or synagogue is not holy ground. Your pastor or rabbi isn't holy. Actually, a lot of things that we call holy aren't. Only God can set something apart as biblically holy. We can't do that, no matter how precious something is to us. Now, to segue 
into the difference between holy versus profane and clean versus unclean, let's talk about Mount Sinai. This is where Moses had the encounter with the burning bush and was commanded to remove his sandals because the ground he was standing on wasn't common, normal, regular ground, but holy ground. There is nothing wrong with the normal ground. The national parks are all profane ground, and yet they are still awesome because God's creation is good. And we can even feel closer to God because the beauty and solitude can make us more attuned to his presence. But there is nothing holy about it. Yahweh told Moses that the proof that it was him sending Moses back to Egypt was that they would all return to that very mountain to worship him. And Moses would have understood that as Yahweh declaring Mount Sinai as a nexus point where heaven and earth overlap, a holy spot, a cosmic nexus. All religions, by the way, understand this concept of sacred ground as being a place where they can come in contact with the divine, not simply spiritually, but also physically or almost physically um, when there is an idol involved. Not us, though, okay? Now, when they returned, we get introduced to the concept of clean versus unclean, which they would have understood already from living in Egypt and quite possibly from the legacy of Noah, who understood the difference between animals that were clean and unclean for sacrificial purposes. This was actually common knowledge in the ancient world and still today. All cultures acknowledge that things need to be in their proper place and that everything is good for something. But maybe not ticks. Anyway, the children of Israel and the mixed multitude finally came to Sinai, and that's when things got really scary and intimidating. Yahweh tells Moses that the people must ritually bathe and wash their clothing and abstain from sexual relations for three days. Is it because they were dirty and dusty? Nope. I mean, they were, but that wasn't why. Is it because sex is somehow original sin? No. They were participating in the ancient understanding that how we approach someone or something is a measure of how much honor or reputation they have or are owed. Yahweh was saying, I delivered you from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and you are not going to casually come into my presence without a status change from unclean to clean. In the outside world, you can be unclean, and it's actually unavoidable and not sinful. But when you come before my throne, you have to think differently and act differently and recognize that you must treat me and my presence differently than absolutely anything else in the world. I am unique and you will treat me as unique. When I teach this to the kids, I tell them that if they're going to visit King Charles, they would be on their best behavior. They wouldn't show up to the palace with smudged faces or in the worst clothes they have. They would want to be respectful to their host, and this goes for visiting other people's houses as well, and to show their host that they appreciate the invitation and are taking it seriously. If they got a call from King Charles, they wouldn't say, yo, Charlie dude, sup. They would be, that would be something their close friends might like to hear, but it isn't for strangers or VIPs. And so being ritually clean in the physical presence of Yahweh or his temple wasn't optional. To show up just however would be insanely disrespectful and cheeky. You wouldn't go, for example, right after having sex or if you were leaking pus 
or infection everywhere, or having your period, or after having had a seminal emission. All of these things made someone not sinful, but unclean. It also didn't remove their holiness status as a group because they were still Israelites who were in covenant with Yahweh, or at least they would be after this event at Sinai, but it did limit how close they could get to the presence of Yahweh in his holy precincts, because that was just a whole other level of specialness. It was considered to be the most important place on earth wherever Yahweh was. The washing wasn't really going to make them clean as we would think of clean, but it was to change their status. It got them ready to be in the presence of the king, and when you spend three days bathing yourself and washing your clothing and not having sexual relations with your spouse, it causes you to think about life and think about God differently. Not in such a way as to degrade their normal lives. They couldn't exactly be fruitful and multiply without sex. Nor could a woman even get pregnant if she um, wasn't menstruating normally. And giving birth wasn't at all sinful, nor was being sick. And they totally understood that. But they also understood that not everything is okay for everywhere. Belching and having gas around a campfire with your buddies is entirely different than letting it rip when you're in a crowded movie theater. Please. The body functions are quite natural, but they have their place. Being aware of when and where things are and are not appropriate is really helpful in understanding the difference between clean and unclean. A live pig, for example, isn't unclean. It isn't unclean until it's dead, and then it is unclean for eating and for touching the carcass. But God made them, and they are excellent garbage disposals. They are good for the purpose for which they were created, and everything has a use, but it doesn't mean that everything is food. Soil in the garden is good and clean, but when we bring it in the house, we call it dirt. Having dirt in the house isn't usually about sin. It's just inevitable. And so when we see it, we scoop it up and we put it back outside where it belongs, where it's clean. So when the Bible says that something is clean, it means that it is whole and where it's supposed to be. If the Bible says something is unclean, it means that it isn't optimal and that something is somehow off. A woman having her period, for example, isn't really feeling up to snuff. And so thank God that he made her off limits, unclean, sexually for the duration. The difference between unclean and clean is generally just time and ritual washing. That's it. Plus, we have to ask the question, unclean for what? Because there is a big difference between shunning someone and just keeping them away from the temple, right? Another word that can be applied to the concepts of clean and unclean is taboo. And something that is taboo is simply something that society has declared inappropriate or forbidden, and in the Bible that would generally be translated as detestable or abominable. There were things done by the Hittites and the Amorites, for example, that Israel was to completely separate themselves from. For example, incest, bestiality, and necrophilia. You know, those Amorites and the Hittites, Hittites especially, and we see this in Sodom. Although the ancient Near Eastern world generally did not frown upon a man penetrating another man sexually, yet shamed the victim, which, you know, super messed up. In uh, Leviticus 18.22, God said, um, no, the person doing the penetrating is committing an abomination. 
which therefore would have eliminated the problem entirely. But I tell you, the ancient world was messed up where the victims of male sexual assault were shamed, but the perpetrators given a high five unless the family took revenge. Scripture tells us that as opposed to the ancient or Eastern way, all sexual assault victims were to be seen as no different from murder victims, innocent and blameless. And this is important to Bible study, understanding the cultural mindsets and the sociology of the people of the ancient world, because it will keep us from making errors that are based upon modern assumptions. And frankly, when we begin to understand these people, we can better appreciate why a lot of Torah was given the way it was, so that we aren't creating disastrous doctrines based upon what we think we are seeing as God's ultimate will. All right, see you next week.